One moment that did shock me was in Oklahoma when we uh, legalized medical marijuana. And whatever you think about that, just set that aside for a moment. What happened was after it's legalized on I-40, our major interstate, these signs start going up, these billboards start going up. And essentially the message of each of these billboards is, are you miserable? Are you depressed? Are you not living your best life? Smoke weed. And I guess just the rawness of the honesty of it was like, okay, if if we get to a place in society where we are just openly acknowledging life is unbearable and we're not going to fix it, so get high, clearly that's a sign screaming at us that there's a problem. Welcome to Acton Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. You just heard Alan Noble, who was our guest today on the podcast, talking about his new book, You Are Not Your Own, Belonging to God in an Inhumane World. In a conversation with Dan Churchwell, Acton's Director of Program Outreach, Noble presents unique insights on our current cultural moment. He describes a path towards happiness that is actually attainable and provides clear understanding of who we are and where we're going. You can pick up a copy of his book in the link in the show notes of this episode. And our listeners can use a special code, AIPOD22, to get 30% off plus free shipping at ivpress.com. This code is good until February 23rd, 2022. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as previous episodes on our website at actin.org slash podcast. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act in Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. My name is Dan Churchwell, Director of Program Outreach here at the Acton Institute. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Alan Noble, Associate Professor of English at Oklahoma Baptist University. Alan is the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Christ and Pop Culture and an advisor for the AND campaign. He has written for The Atlantic, Vox, BuzzFeed, The Gospel Coalition, Christianity Today, and First Things. He is the author of two books, his first book being Disruptive Witness— and then the book we're talking about today is called, and it was just out this, uh, this fall, uh, You Are Not Your Own. Uh, Dr. Noble is, has his PhD from Baylor University. And uh, Dr. Noble, we're really glad that you're joining us today. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So, so this weekend, I, I mean, I've been, you and I have been in contact, you know, for a few weeks getting this set up. And uh, this weekend, though, I was reading an article. I don't know if you know the Hedgehog Review out of UVA. Yeah. So, yes. their, so their latest stuff went from behind the paywall finally, you know, and I, I'm, I'm reading their articles and I... This, this very latest edition had an article called How to Be Yourself, and it's, uh, it's in, uh, again, the latest edition of Hedgehog Review about the college admissions essay requirement, like what uh. kids have to write, you know, to get into college, and it, it's all about authenticity. And uh, this statement caught my interest in the article. While the college prep advisors are right at asserting that no formula guarantees success, The whole process of presenting your best, most authentic self is highly formulaic. The endless articles of how to write an awesome college essay are remarkably similar in this regard. They reflect a shared set of values about what self 
to depict and what self to have. Put bluntly, this best, most authentic self is the version best suited to institutional evaluation and approval. And it just made me think of that after finishing your book. And I mean, it society is just telling, whether it's young people or, or all of us, um, to be authentic, to be yourself, to be, you know, I want to be different just like everybody else, you know, to quote the band Kaylee Rain. So um, I, I love your book uh, and, and its topic. It, it's uh, provocative, uh, especially for a place like the Acton Institute. So I'm really looking forward to diving in. So thanks for being here. Thank you. Um, yeah, that's not, I need, to, I need to read this article now uh because that sounds like a fascinating um yeah i wonder i wonder if you could do a similar thing uh with so so that'll tell us how college or students trying to get into college think of the sort of uh archetype or the platonic ideal of the authentic (laughs) self right like i wonder if you could figure out a, a similar sort of measurement uh for you know, uh, you know, more working class or other classes. That would be fascinating. Yeah, yeah. please be as authentic as possible as long as you fit this formula. You know, I mean, it's 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 uh, there, there's a certain certain kind of insanity in in, in the whole gambit. Um, but you open your book in a, in a similarly uh, similar fashion. You say in the introduction, a defining feature of life in the modern West is our awareness of society's inhumanity and our inability to imagine a way out of it. This humanity includes everything from abortions to mass shootings, widespread cover-ups of sexual abuse, to meaningless jobs, broken communities, and TV shows that are only good for numbing our anxiety for 30 minutes. And then later on, you, you say, strikingly, even as our standard of living in the West continues to rise, our quality of life doesn't. It's possible to make the case that our world is getting better. Dramatic decreases in extreme poverty is one clear example of the world becoming more humane. But yet often, the very techniques that improve our material lives are the ones that alienate us from each other and from creation. So, wow, what a thesis. I mean, you're... Tell me, tell me what, what was the genesis of this? Was there a, like one defining moment for, for the book or how did uh, it develop? No. Yeah. There was no, no one defining moment. I was thinking through, there were sort of two, two, two steps uh, uh, to this. One was thinking about how many of the issues that were the policy issues and social issues and uh, justice issues and ethical issues currently being debated in society centered around this idea of of belonging. Uh, to whom does the self belong? Do you fundamentally belong to yourself or do you belong to another? And if you belong to another, who is that other and what are our obligations to that being? Um, so it seemed to me that a lot of them uh, centered around this. And so you could think about that in relation to, for example, right now uh, with the Supreme Court considering, you know, um, the abortion, right? Uh, that that there's some clear connections there. So there was sort of this uh, uh, high um, abstract thought that uh, s- struck me that so much of this had to do with our conception of belonging. But then at a sort of uh, existential level, level at, a, at a personal level, I have been noticing uh, in myself and my family and my friends and my students, um, just how many of the way, the basic forms of living we have um, are, are inhuman and how often we just take them for granted. And, and maybe one of the 
All right. So there was no one clear moment, but one moment that did sort of uh, sh- sh- shock me was in Oklahoma when we uh, legalized medical marijuana. And whatever you think about that, just set that aside for a moment. Um, what happened was after it's legalized on I-40, our major interstate, uh, these signs start going up, these billboards start going up. And essentially the message of each of these billboards is, um, are you miserable? Are you depressed? Um, are you living, not living your best life? Smoke weed. Um, and, and I guess just the, the, the rawness of the honesty of it, um, sure. was like, okay, if, if we get to a place in society where we are just openly acknowledging there are so life is unbearable and we're not going to fix it. So get high. Clearly that's a sign screaming at us that there's a problem. Sure. Uh, um, and so then the, the question was, where is this problem? How does it operate? And, and at a certain point I connected those two, those two ideas, this question of belonging and then these, um, you know, this inhumanity. Well, as, as I read the book too, I, I, I couldn't help. I mean, what drew my eye to it in the first place was at, at Acton, we, we look a lot at like, what does it mean to be a human person? What does is, what is mm. Christian anthropology look like? I mean, it's it's one of our fundamental um, principles that guide what we do and it guides what, you know, the, some of the philosophical thoughts I have personally as well. And so when, when I read your book, um, is, is it fair to say that the central thesis is that the fundamental lie of modernity is that we are our own? That we are naturally sovereign, we are free, limitless in potential and opportunity. Is is that kind of what you're driving? You're trying to react or engage? Yes, yes, yes. And uh, so, and and maybe I'm just deluding myself and thinking that I'm not just you know rehashing debates about individualism and, um, but 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 I I I think what I'm trying to talk about it includes the sort of American spirit of individualism, but it also goes beyond that to a kind of uh, metaphysical questions of of belonging as well, or or existentialist questions. You know, um, um, to be a person, uh, what does it mean to be a person? And what I'm arguing is that to be a person means to belong to another. And I think the fundamental lie of modernity is that to be a person, we belong only and ever to ourselves. Yeah. And, and I think you say that the phenomenon is mapped onto the very structures of our society, and that helps explain our society's underlying disorder. So you're making a, um, I think it's fair to say, a rather broad sweeping, I mean, you're making a metaphysical claim about the nature of society. That it's, it's almost inescapable, right? I mean, it, it, that yeah. no one is not affected by this. Yeah. It's kind of terrifying to make an argument like that. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes you just have to do it, though. Yeah, <laughs> see if it sticks. Yeah, you're, you know, the first half of your book maybe might make somebody want to smoke weed. You know? <laughs> uh, it's, it is an interesting problem. Yeah, I've had lots of people say like, Whew. there have been several people who who told me I really liked the book and then uh, after they started reading it and then they stopped talking to me about it. And I'm pretty sure they just got overwhelmed by the first half. So, yes. So, so let me just ask just basically what's ultimately wrong with being wholly responsible for one's own life? Yeah. So um, the argument I make in the book uh, is that it's uh, the, the, the thing that's wrong with it is that it's impossible, that, that it's not um, it's not physically possible. It's not uh, emotionally, spiritually possible. It's not metaphysically possible. Your very existence uh, is uh, is a gift. 
And uh, because of that, trying if, if you begin with the assumption that you are the one who holds up your being in the world, your presence in the world, uh, and that includes everything from sort of you know, from justification of your of your life. My life is meaningful, or it, it it has a sense of fullness, or I looked back on my life and I was satisfied at what I accomplished, whatever it is. To things like identity or values and meaning. Um, if you believe that it's your responsibility to cobble together all of those things to make your life uh, full and rich and uh, meaningful, then uh, you're going to be on this endless uh, treadmill. And what will happen is that, and this, what I argue is that society gives us this, this offer. It says, if you will just accept the responsibilities of self-belonging, that's what I call these things, the responsibilities of self-belonging. If you'll just do this, you'll have the freedom that you desire and you'll have the peace that you desire. Uh, and to help us uh, accomplish these, to meet these, these responsibilities, it gives us techniques, various techniques. But what I argue is that the techniques don't actually ever ever get us anywhere. So the techniques, for example, the society gives us to craft and define and project and express our identity are never enough. They always leave us feeling deeply inadequate and depressed. And so what do we do? We use coping mechanisms like weed, which I mentioned earlier. Um, so, so the fundamental problem is it's not true to existence. Um, and therefore, when we, when we uh, try to live as if it were true, we create inhuman uh, conditions for ourselves and for each other. We create laws and values and expectations and burdens that we put on other people that are not reasonable to put on other people. Yeah. I, essentially, if I hear you correctly, you're, you're saying it's, it's this view of humanity is ontologically false. Like the nature of humanity can't be this way. Yeah. Um, That's correct. And, and you use you use the term society, so I'm going to press you a little bit. When you when you say society, I mean, do you want to spill the tea, as the kids say? You know, do you what do you mean by society? What are ways or avenues in which these ideas are presented? We talked. I mean, you talked about billboards on I-40, so that's marketing. Mm -hmm. What you mm -hmm. know? What, what are some What are some ways that you see this oh, coming? See. You know, society is a pretty broad, nebulous term. Mm -hmm. What, right. what ways in society do, does this come to yeah. us? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so it certainly comes through mass media. Um, I mean, uh, it's 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 a cliche, but but it is true that our children are raised to believe that they can be whatever they want to be, and that comes. Here's the thing that 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 sounds really nice, but it comes with an actual. It actually, it comes with a moral obligation to be the best you can possibly be to be whatever you want to be. And, and if you don't, if you don't discover your true inner authentic self and pursue that and achieve it, then you're somehow uh, a sense of failure. Or perhaps if you, uh, I don't know, set aside that thing that you really want to do because your immediate community needs you to serve them, then uh, you're, you're, you're a, a kind of moral failure because you're not being your true authentic self. So we see this in, you know, whether it's, you know, Disney films or, you know, animated films. And why that example is interesting to me is I, the, the quote you gave that, that I say at the very beginning, which is that, that we, uh, I don't even remember what I wrote, but, you know, we recognize that, 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 that the society is deeply inhuman and we can't see a way out of it. And to me, the commentary and the criticisms of Disney films and children's films is a perfect example of that. I've been hearing the same basic criticism, the one I just gave about how these 
you know, kids shows are are destructive because they're portraying really harmful messages. I've been hearing that for decades. <laughs> Nothing's changed. Mm-hmm. And nobody seems that we don't expect it to change. We're just kind of like, well, what are you going to do? Yeah. My kids watch it. Your kids, watch, you know, it, it just continues. It just continues. All right. Yeah. So certainly in, um, in, so I gave the example of kids, but that same basic message will be carried through them as they transfer to social media. So there'll be TikTok influencers or Instagram influencers who are telling them fundamentally the same thing that their purpose in life, their significance in life is determined by the brand, the being, the, uh, the identity that they create and project uh, into the world, which is this ridiculous standard that will crush them. Um, so we have it there, but we also have it in, um, you know, in academic settings. So you'll have teachers and administrators and parents telling their children that they have to achieve, they have to be the best version of themselves, that if they don't have, uh, you know, the top scores and all these things, and they don't have all these extracurriculars, then they won't get into the right school and then their life will fall behind, et cetera, et cetera. There are all of these social pressures, uh, social messages from institutions, from individuals, from families, from people who often mean well. I think that's important to note uh, that your task in life, the one thing that you have to do in life is make your story great. That's your job is to make your story an amazing story. And if you don't, then your life is a failure. Yeah. And, and you, I think in the book, you, you argue that this comes um, or, or the explanatory power of this comes a lot from Alistair McIntyre's concept of emotivism. And uh, how much do you think emotivism, and as as he defined it or, or played with the term and described the term, um, really does play into, especially for how chill, you know young people are are thought to think about themselves? Do you think that emotivism is foundational? I would say so. Yes, yes. In in uh, does the social like. Yeah, I've heard you in other settings, other podcasts and things, you know, you talk about the idea of social media. Um, do, do you think that that has a, an overabundance or just it's another part of the whole puzzle that that does this? Yeah. So there's a version of this book that I didn't write that I'm actually not qualified to write that uh, focuses uh, much more on the uh, maybe – Maybe we could say the more material causes. Uh, I, I I have focused on one. Uh, I would call it sort of a, an ideological foundation or root. And well, in this case, it's an anthropological root mm-hmm. that I think these things come out of. But there there is an interesting way of exploring uh, the, the role that, let's say, social media, the way that that markets, the way that technology in general. Um, all feed into this because it's, I think it's important to know that, you know, uh, this isn't primarily an intellectual thing that's happening. In other words, uh, most people don't wake up and say, um, I am fundamentally my own and I belong to myself and it's my job to make my existence uh, meaningful. That's not how it, how it works, sure. right? And it's not that somebody teaches them this in a very explicit terms. It's just that when you get thousands of similar messages uh, across the day over time, that's what, and when we reinforce this, when yeah. we reward people for these things, that's what happens. What what I found interesting too is that um, the Acton Institute, right, named for Lord Acton, probably his most famous quote is "Power tends to corrupt, but absolute power corrupts absolutely." But but a quote that follows on shortly um, behind that one is, is probably his most popular, is that. Um, 
Liberty is not the power of doing what we like, but the Ooh. right of being able to do what we ought. Oh, and and that's, that's he should be known for that one. That was <laughs> right. even better. Well, and and he's writing that as a Catholic to other Catholics and trying to engage the Pope yeah. in, in some certain very uh, technical political engagements that were happening. This was written in 1860, but Pope John Paul II reiterates it in 1995 in Camden Yards in Baltimore. He says, uh, this is Pope John Paul II, every generation of Americans need to know that freedom consists not in doing what we like, but in having the right to do what we ought. So he, so he, it's almost the same quote. Um, so tell are you me, saying the Pope pl- plagiarized? I'm, I'm just trying to clarify what exactly <laughs> yeah, are no. you claiming he, at he, this moment? He is a, a, a quote. You know, he, he likes to quote good sources, and so yes, and, okay. and so he uh, <laughs> he uh, he has the opportunity though to share that, and and you have in your book kind of the same central frame. And in, in other words, you were trying to frame the argument anthropologically, and tell us a little more. I mean the. The thesis is this idea that culture, society, what have you, makes us think that we can craft our authenticity. We can make ourself. And then the title of the book is You Are Not Your Own. So, so what is the frame that that comes from? What, what is the title? Where, where did you get that idea? So I get this from uh, the Heidelberg, uh, Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer one, uh, which asks um, – uh, what is your only comfort in in, lo- in life and in death? And the answer that it gives is that you are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, and it seemed to me that um, th- thinking about so many of these issues, um, it really does, they really do hinge on this question of, of, be- of, of belonging. And that, and that gets into, or that is absolutely connected to this idea of liberty. So for example, if we conceive of li- liberty as limitlessness, that makes a whole lot of sense if we are our own and belong to ourselves, because uh, there is no limit except what the natural world and our willpower um and society puts upon us, right? And and the thing is, is those three forces are um, the natural world, our will, and society. Those are things that the contemporary world is actively working on, right? So we're working on bending our nature so that we can be whatever we want to be. We're working on uh, changing our wills, right? There are so many uh, uh, you know, strategies and techniques and mindset programs that you can get into to have the right attitude to change things and 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 also society we're constantly trying to change society to make it um this space where people can pursue uh their authentic self but uh even though it's it you know it's always not really uh an original authentic self um so this question of 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 liberty this very enlightenment idea of liberty as limitlessness um, is contrasted with the classical understanding of liberty, liberty as well. What uh, Lord Acton and and the Pope um, after him, um, and and many others have pointed to, which is that that true freedom lies in the ability to do uh, what is good. Um, and it yeah. seemed like you were at tension with. I mean, that that's the idea. If we are to create our authentic self, there's a sense in which, again, this is implicit, not explicit, but that we are untethered from any mooring or moral grounding. 
I mean, that's the concern, right? That if we are all supposed to be autonomous, limitless selves, that there really is no foundation to have any kind of... And so you were trying to focus us or reorient the reader back to this foundation. Is, is that is that fair? Yeah, th- that's fair. So I would say, now it, it, it can be a little bit tricky, but I would, I would say for in general, that's right. So it really depends on our verbiage. So if you believe that we are fundamentally our own, um, will you have sort of any grounds to guide you? Well, yes, uh, there are going to be social norms that pressure you. And and the existentialist, mid-century French existentialist t- talk about this quite a bit as it, part of our challenges sort of backing up and getting out of these social norms so that we can really be free. Um, so it's it's possible, for example, to be someone who's uh, very Christian and supports, um, uh, you know, very conservative ideas that restrain liberty in certain ways, but still view yourself as being fundamentally your own person. And it just so happens that you've chosen a, a this lifestyle as opposed to a more libertine lifestyle. Right. And I think that thing, I think that happens. I I have seen this with, 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 with students and other, other Christians. I know people who, who, who view their faith and the, the, the rules that come along with it as a lifestyle option. And I want to say, if you're taking that perspective um, I'm not saying you're not a Christian, but I am saying that that it, it could be the case that you're 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 still you're building from a fundamentally flawed uh, basis, mm-hmm. which is still that you are radically autonomous. Yeah, and you you use multiple societal illustrations um, in in your writing, and you, you uh, rely heavily and quote heavily from uh, Jacques Ellul and others, Wendell Berry, etc. Jacques Ellul, you know, he had this idea of technique um, in in modern society. And technique, again, it was a much broader um, idea for Ellul. But efficiency comes out in 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 multiple places in your book and you um you seem to take a take aim especially at efficiency the idea of a you know if it can't be counted it doesn't count and that 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 mm. element of modern society why why do you think that's especially pernicious so the danger that that Alul points to is that um tech uh uh Technique, um, which which has to do with efficiency, um, methods for maximizing efficiency in every human endeavor. Um, if efficiency becomes a problem, and it becomes the primary standard, the primary um, v- value that we have. And Alul's argument, I, I'm not quite where he is, but Alul's argument is that that really efficiency uh, in the form of technique will just override all values, um, Mm -hmm. all religious values, all uh, government values, and uh, it'll overcome everything. Um, I'm not quite uh, uh, that that strong on it, but I do think that it is uh, very tempting for efficiency to become um, the thing that 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 predominates. And there there are a number of reasons for that. Um, One is that uh, when, you know, you mentioned, uh, emotivism. Okay. So, well, when, when it comes to morality, when we're operating from an emotivist perspective and we can't really, uh, agree very well on ethical principles, um, that's difficult to operate on a society, but as a society, but I'll tell you, if I can put a number, uh, on the harm caused by a certain policy, all of a sudden it's a whole lot easier for us to have a public debate about it. 
right? So uh, if I can say this is going to, this policy will reduce harm this much, um, that makes it uh, a lot easier. Or this practice in the office will increase productivity and, uh, you know, sales this much, then, then that's a whole lot more uh, tangible than saying something like having this practice with the way we engage with customers um, is more uh, humanizing or, or more loving or more honoring or has more dignity. Um, those sorts of values are, because they're not really quantifiable, um, uh, you know, they tend to fall by the wayside and because we tend not to agree on them, right? What is, I, you know, there's a whole lot of, in, in doing the research for this book, one of the things that I was struck by was that, I think it was Steven Pinker, but it might've been somebody else is very suspicious of the word dignity because it's like, you know, it could mean anything and nothing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we can't really measure that. But what we can do is 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 look at these measurements of of poverty reduction or something like that. So uh, that's, in my mind, I mean, that that I think is one of the great pulls of of, of efficiency. Absolutely. And, and if you, it looks better on graphs for sure, right? And you can you can track. Um, I mean, one of the in free market economics, one of the main graphs people use is what's called the hockey stick of you know post eighteen hundred. If you look at um, economic productivity pre eighteen hundred, it's pretty flat. And then yeah. roughly at 1800, it, it just precipitously rises, right? You know, and you um, you even mentioned, I, I quoted in, in the beginning of your book, like that people can point to in the last, even in the last decade, I mean, hundreds of millions, if not billions of people have been brought out of poverty. And yeah. uh, and so there is an element of good, right? But so mm -hmm. what what is, you engage the idea of markets and, and efficiency in, in a way uh, that seems like, I, I guess what I'm trying to understand is that your concern isn't, uh, is to make sure that we don't make them ultimate. Is that right? That we don't, that don't look merely to efficiency or merely to economic progress as the sole arbiter of, uh, for the lack of a better term, flourishing. Is, is that correct? It's, yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah. So um, when uh, markets are exclusively focused on, on efficiency, or, or not just markets, but really any institutions. When when efficiency become the becomes the highest standards, uh, then inevitably humans are going to be treated in inhuman ways. So here's here's an interesting example. A couple of uh, maybe two months ago now, uh, Harvard Business Review did this uh, published this article on. Um, things, I think it was benefits that employees uh, most desired, not like medical benefits, but, but perks around the office. And the number one thing was um, natural lighting. That's what employees wanted most. And when I read that, um, I thought, that's kind of depressing. Uh, that that I, I mean, on the one hand, it's it's not because if if, if you've been in an office with no windows, you know how depressing oh, actually absolutely. depressing that could be. Yeah. But but on the other hand, the fact that you would even need a study to say that uh, people like sunlight is um, it's just it's just remarkable. Uh, but what killed me, what killed me was after that paragraph, after it establishes, okay, this percentage said this is what they want: some natural lighting. The article goes on to say something, you know, in essence, uh, employers should offer their employees this benefit because employees that work in natural light are this percentage more productive. And I thought, well, that's it, isn't it? Right. Um, so because there's an interesting question here. What if that wasn't true? What if I do a study tomorrow and it turns out 
um, they're no more productive. What if it's not more efficient? Maybe it's just good to offer your employees something that's good for them as human beings. Now, I'm not saying that it's a bad thing that, that they're more productive. Uh, no, that's, yeah, that's great. That's great. What I'm saying is, and this is not just markets, but it's anything, when, when our frame of mind is we have to just every, justify everything through efficiency, uh, inevitably other values, morality, the good of our neighbor will fall by the wayside. And, and I, I feel like uh, that's the world that, that we're, we're, we're living in. Yeah. And when you talk about, you know, I was thinking about what other organizations or institutions are affected by this. And obviously the workplace is, is high. This, this, this shows up highly in the workplace. Um, how do you think your idea, how, how would this help humanize? I, I'm, I've been thinking a lot recently about humanizing the workplace, trying to pull mm. it out of this technocracy or, or whatever we would like to call it. You know, they, there's so many articles on uh, the great resignation. I think yeah. you quote uh, uh, or engage the idea of burnout in your book as well. And this idea of rest, I really loved the, the idea of rest or burnout or, I mean, it ultimately it's human. Uh, the, the, the idea of being flourishing, being flourishing humans is what is your major concern and, and where it's grounded. But talk about burnout a little bit or the, this low-grade anxiety that seems to just be hovering over the workplace. I mean, what what do you think uh, can be done there with this idea of rest or um, just – In the workplace? Yeah, workplace Specifically? Issues. Sure. Yeah. So uh, – and this is related to technique as well. If there is always another technique to improve uh, your life. Right. And uh, Lul, I think the phrase he uses in the English translation, you know, every sphere of human life or something like this. Right. And, and, and that is the that that really is the case. I, I, I think I use this example in the book, but when I was writing it, um, I had uh, I love to sleep on my side. I'm a side sleeper. But my shoulder as I'm getting older, what happens <laughs> like your body starts hurting doing simple things like sleeping. I sleep on my side and I, I wake up with all this pain in my shoulder. This is what being old is like. And what did I do? I Googled it. I, and I knew even before I Googled it, I knew there would be a best practice for sleeping on my side. And there was. It was like it was prophetic. I knew, and there was there. There somebody had done some study, and they told you exactly how to sleep on your side. Well, th th that's a trivial thing, not to my shoulder, but but in the big scheme of things. Uh, but there's those kinds of uh, best practices, uh, better methods, better techniques for everything for sending emails, for dealing with text messages, for uh, responding to uh, problems in the workplace, to uh, managing time cards, to whatever. There's always a new, always a better technique. And uh, if there is, and you're not adopting it, there's a, again, there's that, that, that sort of moral pressure, you're falling behind, you're not doing enough. And so you're always aware in the back of your mind that you're inadequate. Yeah. You're not, you're, you're not doing the right way. You're not, uh, I, I, this seems like a wonderful podcast. There are best practices that I'm sure you're not following. Right. Oh, and sure. if you let yourself, you can be, uh, there can be this low grade anxiety. Every time you do one of these, you'll be like, man, I know we should have this equipment, or I know we should be doing this, or I know I should be prepping in this way, or, and that can go on for eternity. And, 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 
it's it's projected in front of us too. It's mm-hmm. not like it's not just like there, that. There's knowledge way out there that I would have to hunt for. This stuff is being thrown in our faces through you know advertising and and, and such. And so um, I think this, among other things, can creates this sense of just constant inadequacy, constantly behind, uh, uh, never able to uh, to catch up. So the question of you know how do we uh, you know, humanize the workplace. Um, you know, we have to, um, on the one hand, recognize that efficiency is not a a, a bad thing in the abstract. Uh, um, it it has good and proper uses. It's and we don't want people to be inefficient for the sake of being inefficient. That's just foolishness. Um, so, um, humanizing the workspace does not mean. Um, trying to be in, as inefficient as possible, but instead it means looking at um, uh, the way we do things and not valuing efficiency as the maximum good. Um, it also means Elul, in, in, in an article he wrote uh, later, argues that that we must learn to do, uh, choose to do, choose not to do all that we can do. Uh, and I think this is an interesting thing. So I'm going to give an example. Um, uh, uh, um, uh, I'm just going to give an example from churches because this is kind of what I know. Uh, many churches, and this will be true with other bus- with businesses as well, uh, feel like it's uh, they have to adopt the latest technology over the over the pandemic as the, uh, services became streaming. Right, right. Everyone had to stream. There was a lot of pressure to get the best technology, and so these little churches that were not used to this all of a sudden felt like you know I've got to have these programs, I've got to have this equipment, I have to have uh, this production because the technology is there. And what Alul would say is that we need to choose not to do all that we can do. Uh, and uh, yes, there are uh, fancier ways of doing things, but that doesn't mean that we always need to do them. Um, and uh, so so that's, that's, that's one thought. The other thought is that even when we do make decisions for the well-being of our employees, uh, it's okay if it actually does lead to an increased bottom line and more productivity. But I think um, w- we need to have in our in our minds uh, the the decision that that if a policy is good for my, my employees or my customers as human beings, that's enough of a reason. If I can, you know, it, it, you know, unless it bankrupts the, the company or something, you know, but but that's that's enough of a reason. I I don't need to have the the you know numbers to back it up. Yeah, and it, it, for the the modern workplace or even just the modern organization, whether it's nonprofit or church or or, or business, it seems like the the constant race to have the most efficient or or the best equipment um, masks what it means to interact. Uh, humanely. I mean, if you've ever managed people, the more you have in between you, like programmatically and just the human touch, the engagement with the human person, um, because you're right, some, somebody might be underperforming, but if you, ro- you just use the raw data for the underperformance and don't look into the situation deeper or ask questions or engage on a level that, again, is more humane, you, you miss the larger picture, more of the context is simply missing. Yep. And yep. 
I don't know if you uh, are familiar with Hartmut Rosa. He's a, a German mm-hmm. sociologist. His little book, The Uncontrollability of the World. Fantastic. Oh, have you? Okay. So it, he, he argues that we, you know, this low-grade anxiety where we're trying to, um, we're being, trying to make the world more visible, more reachable, more manageable, and more useful. These Just this mm-hmm. four, you know, and, and, and if we can't, Make it more visible, reachable, manageable, and useful. It's the, the anxiety is there because we can never really fully get there, and yeah. we, we try to control every little piece. And like you said, but then next week a new, whether it's Harvard Business Review or Forbes or whoever, has a new technique, right. and and we just can't get there. So it, so in this book, that's like the first half. You're you're trying to talk about you know efficiencies and some of these institutions that this topic. Um, infects or, you know, engages us uh, to, to think this way. Is, is there hope? I mean, you, you, you lay out a pretty broad, you know, uh, condemnation, if, if you will. What, what, uh, what, what do you see as, as the opportunity to say, how do we flourish? Where, where is the common good um, mm-hmm. using this frame? So there are uh, a couple of things give, give me hope. So the most practical thing that gives me hope is that uh, it, it, it does seem to me talking to uh, younger people, m- my students in particular, um, and I've heard this from many other people at, at colleges that there is a general dissatisfaction and, 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 and maybe the great resignation. Is that what, it's, is mm-hmm. that what we're calling it? Yep. Yeah. Yep. That, uh, you know, I've wanted to write, this is one of the things I've wanted to write a piece on, but I haven't been able to this semester. I, I, I wonder if part of that is, if what we're seeing there is connected to some of the themes in this book, um, the sense that um, when you're working a meaningless job, uh, that there's no sense of uh, of dignity in it, and it's uh, dehumanizing. Then, um, and when prices are going up and wages are not, then you're kind of like, well, what's the point of any of this, right? Uh, which seems like a you know at least a rational uh, uh, response. So. Um, I I am seeing I think in my students uh, a, a wide uh, is it is not difficult for me to persuade them that they are overwhelmed and burnt out already and that it comes from this sense of 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 self belonging they're they're there they know this they know the role social media plays in it they just don't know an alternative so that's encouraging right because if you if you cannot identify the disease you can't even begin to diagnose it and so often what we do is we just we just throw up our hands and instead we put up billboard signs offering you know medical marijuana and say well we just numb ourselves that's the best we could do right now um so that's you know that's a sign of hope um you know ultimately I, I take I, I turn to Elul's theological writings for uh, and T. S. Eliot's theological writings in his poetry uh, for my sense of hope. Um, you know, both of them writing roughly mid-century in Europe, both wrestling with uh, you know what we generally call a pro, post-Christian uh, Europe and the question of where is civilization going, and um, for both of them. There is the requirement to act, act where you are uh, in your sphere of influence, to um, bear witness to God, to pursue justice, to uh, live righteously where you are and wherever your sphere of influence might be. But there's also this recognition that um, that that ultimate redemption comes through Christ and that uh, that that there is a danger in efforts to uh 
too programmatically or systematically or too confidently uh, come up with plans to save the country, save the West, save civilization uh, and, and these sorts of things. Uh, and that comes with a sense of peace. Um, Eliot calls it waiting without hope. Um, and uh, Elul points out that, you know, if this seems dissatisfying, this whole idea that that our task is to honor God where we are instead of trying to, to, to save the entire city ourselves, if that sounds unsatisfying, we have to remember that uh, God is a God who saved all of Nineveh. So, uh, so there's that. And my hope would be is a practical implication that, you know, from a book like this and from this is just one among many books that are having this conversation um, that are out right now that 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 people would start uh, being conscious and that we could have pockets of resistance in churches, in institutions, in schools that are pushing back, that are saying we don't have to live like this. Are they going to radically change society? I'm, I'm skeptical, but it doesn't matter. I guess that's my point is it doesn't matter. If it's the right thing to do, then we should do it. And that, that I think is the case. Yeah. And it, I mean, I, you're a professor. You've, you've worked with students for years. I had the chance to teach for over a decade in two different higher ed institutions and both were Christian. And what I found is this this idea of to change the world, or or this this idea, particularly for Christian students, well meaning, but it, this this it was an anxiety that was laid on their doorstep that just doesn't have to be. This concept of change the world, like you are world changers, you know that this kind of rah rah um, freshman seminar kind of thing, and it, it it just really seems to be largely damaging. What what could we do as leaders? How about that? Is there a way yeah. to think through this in our families or our smaller spheres of influence, like you said, um, where we can kind of be uh, subversive? So what's interesting about this, this to me is an example of how this idea that that we are our own and belong to ourselves, and therefore we have these these responsibilities of self-belonging. So we have to make our lives significant and meaningful by changing the world, et cetera, et cetera. This is one example of, of, of how I think it's, it's, uh, it's just as true in, you know, in religious uh, uh, communities as, as, as in secular communities, because secular kids are being taught the same thing in public schools, you know, and, and religious kids are taught this in public schools as well, right? That they, that they are going to change the world, that they're going to save the world. And, and, you know, part of the implication is that they have the responsibility to do mm -hmm. all these things and that they are capable of doing all these things if they just put their mind to it and work because they've been given the techniques that they need to be highly successful and achieve their dreams. So if they don't, it's their fault. Um, and that, that is crushing. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think, I, I, so this is a good question. So, um, on the practical side, we need to be able to, um, help younger people understand the great dignity in simple faithfulness. So, um, I think it's of great value to ask young people as they're considering college majors or careers or whatever, uh, not just what are you good at and what can you make money at and what do you enjoy doing, which are three fine questions, but what is your society, what does your community need? Uh, what is for the common good? Um, and that's the question that I think most, I was never encouraged to think through that question. Um, not what will change the world, right? Because mm -hmm. sometimes we're telling them that and that that's too much, but just what does your community need? 
Right. Because I, I fear that sometimes students feel that they have to become doctors or lawyers or missionaries or something and that and and leave their community in order to do something meaningful. But but what their communities need is someone to be faithful where they are and do simple, honest, faithful work. Um, blue collar, white collar, it doesn't matter. Uh, and so there's really a, a whole conception of what the good life looks like, what the faithful life looks like. Uh, that that we need to be embodying and that we need to be promoting as a as a counter narrative, uh, and that happen that certainly happens in higher education, um, you know. And I, I I think that we have a a big role to play to play in that. And then I I often talk to my students about you know the fact that you know some of them is when their seniors feel this pressure to go to grad school and there's you know this unspoken feeling that if they don't get a, a higher degree because so many people have bachelors then maybe they're not they're not good enough and so being able to talk to them about you know if if you have a job that supports your family that does honorable work that is blessing your community in some way and you do that job faithfully for the rest of your life that's a good life. Yeah. Uh, and I, I don't think they've been taught that. Yeah. That, and it seems so simple um, in, in another context. It's what Eugene Peterson calls like the long obedience in the same direction, uh, a long obedience in the same direction. Um, and it's kind of a flattening or, or, a, or an evening. And, and people, you can see it in their eyes. You can see them come alive or when they can engage that, that that's actually an option. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it, it, it really does take some re- um, reformatting for some people. Um, and especially you're, you're in a unique position with college age students to really work through some of those tensions. Um, I want to leave uh, today as, as we wrap up uh, a little bit on, on rest. And I've heard you talk in different contexts about the importance, um, of rest. And can, can you explain why, why you find that, um, needful in our, in our contemporary era? Yeah. So, well, I mean, if, if we have a burnout crisis, then clearly we need to rest. Um, so that, that's that one component of it, but it's interesting because it's possible to have a kind of uh, fake rest that is merely recharging so that we can be more productive, uh, later. And the kind of rest that I'm talking about is, is, is not that, um, so uh, really, you know, we, we both talked, you, you mentioned ontologically and I mentioned uh, metaphysically that, you know, uh, sort of the themes that we're, I'm trying to express here, um, they are existential, they are biological rest, um, but, but they also have to do with our place in, in existence. And uh, I guess I would want to say that if ontologically we are fundamentally our own, then we probably shouldn't ever rest. That we should we can recharge so that we can be more effective uh, when we wake up, but we should never rest. We have to be constantly vigilant, constantly working, constantly improving, becoming the best version of ourselves. That's the obligation. That's the duty that we have until we drop dead. And and I do think that that is how most of us feel, whether we want to believe that or not. That's often how we operate. Um, the alternative is that uh, our existence in the world and actually existence itself is preserved by someone who to whom we belong and is not us, in this case, God. And uh, if that possibility is true, then we can rest, that we have the ontological freedom to not be productive all the time, to not be doing something advantageous. And it's really hard in our society to do that. So, for example, you know, yesterday was Sunday – 
you know, I could uh, imagine my, you know, I, I could sit down with my my children and read them a book. And in my mind, I could be thinking, aha, Alan, you're being a great dad. This is going to increase their vocabulary by five points. And studies have shown that children whose fathers read to them are much more likely to, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> right. Now, all of a sudden, it's efficiency. All of a sudden, I'm not actually leisurely. I'm not actually in rest and in peace. Uh, um, just doing something beautiful and good. Instead, I'm programming my children to be better, uh, more effective, uh, effective and productive members of society. Um, so I, I think if we do not belong to ourselves, then we have the freedom to rest. And that's not an easy thing. It's hard for us to do. I often feel guilty seriously resting. I'm fine exhausting myself until I collapse, but it, I find it very difficult to stop and delight in something that is unproductive, that's not going to give me some advantage or get me ahead or catch up on something. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I think, is a symptom of a, of a, of a larger problem that we, uh, you know, Alul, you know, frames it as this, you know, this idea that, that, that we can exist without the hand of God, that we support ourselves. Um, so the rest I'm talking about, the rest we need is the antidote to burnout, but it's also the antidote to the the uh, tyranny of efficiency that can squash all other values and human goods and spiritual goods. Um, But it's also very hard to do. And so practically that's something that we can do together is we can practice this, encourage each other to practice this, practice this in community. And you mentioned something um, even, even as simple, you know, there's so much uh, loneliness and anxiety that just the ability to drop by, I've heard, you know, you had friends that, w- that you could just drop by their house or just, yeah. you know, no matter the house wasn't spick and span, the, the food was, you know, whatever you could figure out and, and have a, have a meal together. But it, but it was, there was an idea that rest wasn't necessarily being alone, but not having to strive for, for perfection. That's e- right. Even in friendships. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what, what's Rosa? Uh, Harmon Rosa? What, uh, Hartmut. Yeah. Hartmut. Hartmut. Rosa. Yeah. So I read his book, uh, uh, The Uncontrollability of of the World, after I finished drafting <laughs> and sending off revisions. And I read it and I was like, this is great. And there's these perfect overlaps, yeah. different language, different yeah. approach, but it's fundamentally these same questions about control and about power and about autonomy anyway. Um, but yeah, it's that, you know, you know, uh, a restful, uh, uh, you know, um, hospitality is one where you're not trying to master your house and control yeah. the environment and the party and the experience, but you're, you're just, you're just with mm-hmm. uh, them. Yeah, and uh, it reminded me of G- uh, G.K. Chesterton. I don't know if you're familiar. He has this great little triad. He he thought we were getting leisure fundamentally wrong, the idea of leisure. He argues that there's really three different types of leisure when we talk about leisure. The first is being allowed simply to do something. But the second kind of leisure is being allowed to do anything but then he huh. said, ultimately, thirdly, this is real leisure, the ability or, or to be allowed to do nothing, to be freed huh. up, to just simply do nothing, to have the ability to let your mind go and rest and interact um, with what you will rather than, you know, a lot of culture, you know, you can either play golf or play tennis. Like, like it, that, what, that's what we think of leisure. But there are limits that we can do either something or anything, but he argued that true leisure is really if you have the ability to do absolutely nothing. Hmm. 
And um, I, I find that That's interesting. this idea of idleness, tr- true idleness, letting the mind – and of course, he was a guy who wrote, you know, a hundred books and and uh, thousands of articles, <laughs> like 3,000, I think, you know, newspapers. You know, so he he wasn't an idle man himself, but he he treasured that he saw in, even in his own society, British society, that, that it – we don't have the ability to just do nothing. Yeah. Because yeah. it, 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 the, the true leisure, we, we just can't even attain it. And so I really do think we need to get back. And, and I like how you presented the idea of hospitality. That's a very simple way that many people sh- should be able to think about their life um, in a way that's, that, that could be easily more restful. Well, Alan, what, uh, what, what's next for you? What are, are you, are you thinking about, um, speaking of efficiency and anxiety, are, are you thinking about a, a, ne- a new project or is there, is there something, uh, what, what's keeping uh, you, uh, motivated? Yeah. So, uh, I've got another book tentatively called on getting out of bed that deals with, uh, questions of, of, of mental health. I wrote an essay called on living that i basically expanding into a short book. Um, so I drafted that over the summer. I'm just oh, going to edit that over the break. And um, yeah, so I'm going to work on that. And that'll be, that'll be, that'll be fun. I mean, I don't mean that sarcastically. I mean, it actually will be you know, satisfying. Well, I really appreciate your time today uh, talking about your book. Uh, you are not your own. Um, I did talk with your rep at IVP and uh, they're willing for our listeners when this goes um, – when this is sent out that uh, if, if listeners find this book interesting, find this topic provocative, um, I do recommend the book uh, that listeners can get 30 percent plus free shipping, um, 30 percent off uh, and free shipping through IVPPress.com. And, uh, and so if they use the code AI pod 22 and we'll put that in the show notes so they can see that but uh we'd love to get more people reading and discussing uh, your work so thanks for being with us um good luck on this new writing project and uh we appreciate your work thank you as always thank you for listening our team loves putting this podcast together for you it's encouraging to hear from our listeners feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Gabriel Jaja. 